hate that job anyway. I see why you just don't quit. Because I want to fit in. Welcome back to another exciting meeting of the Nightlight Horror Movie Club. I'm here with my uh, co-host and sister, Emma. We're, hey, guys. We're really excited for this one. Um, we're doing American Psycho. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I was excited whenever Kate picked this one from the ones that I offered her, but I'm even more excited having uh, rewatched it and also done a bit of research on it. I think this one's going to be a good one. Wait, so you had seen it before? Um, eight years ago. So it's been a minute, and I was... A little bit nervous to watch it alone, honestly, but I forgot that it's actually kind of funny in addition to being disturbing. Um, that's one probably complaint that we're going to get from people is that this isn't a horror movie. But if we aren't the only ones who wanted to cover this movie for the club. This was also a club member suggestion like all of the recent ones have been. Yeah, we're excited to have this as a listener recommendation. Carly recommended that this to us through email. So shout out to Carly. Thanks for the recommendation. And uh, just remember, if you guys want us to watch your favorite horror movie or your least favorite horror movie, um, email us at nightlighthorrormovieclub at gmail.com, or you can hit us on any of our various social meds. <laughs> yes, go go check out our social meds, which mysteriously have, have really picked up in the past couple weeks. They're looking pretty good. Okay, Emma's in charge of our social <laughs> meds now. <laughs> Thank you, Emma. Emma's You're learned welcome. how to use the stories, the Instagram stories, which I didn't know how those happened. I said, Kate, go check out the story. She said, what's the story? And I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Getting some fresh blood in here. It's nice. Yeah, exactly. But back to this movie. Um, so obviously, spoilers abound. Uh, again, this movie came out in 2000, so you've had plenty of time. But... We're going to just run on through it. So if if you watch this movie, if you're confused, well, you're not alone. So settle in for a very, very wild ride because this is going to be a super fun episode. Yes, I'm super excited about this one. Uh, let's just dive in, shall we? Okay. Um, so it was a toughie. There are so many to choose from. But I settled on Willem Dafoe. The genre is Willem Dafoe. Yeah, no pun this time, guys. Willem Dafoe just legit scares the shit out of me. <laughs> I think that that's perfectly fair. Even as a detective, I'm like, don't fuck with him. <laughs> yeah, he was very intimidating, and he was being so nice. Yeah, but he smiles, <laughs> and he scares the shit out of me. And also, was he being nice? Um, he was definitely the good guy. Yeah, that's... Without argument, I guess you could say. And I'm very excited to talk about the budget for this movie. So Ooh. the budget, actually, so the budget is actually a very interesting story, probably just to me. So I'll cut to the chase and say it was $7 million. But I will be talking more about the absolute fight that this movie became just trying, between the producers and the director and Christian Bale try, oh, wow. and, this, and the studio, just trying to get this movie made the right way. Mm -hmm. So the movie came out in 2000. It's based on a book that was written in 1991. And by 1992, the producer, Edward Pressman, had already purchased the rights to it. And then there was just like an eight-year-long feud as it was getting made. But it was a $7 million budget. And the box office was uh, $34.3 million. So that's like just from the the sheer return on investment, I, I can tell it 
it didn't do poorly. We shall see, Kate. We shall see. Uh, the director, this is very exciting, is a female director. Her name is Mary Heron, which I was super excited about. And it's a female screenwriter, too. If I recall, I think that I, I believe they actually turned down the author as the screenwriter. I think he pitched a script and they actually ended up choosing this woman. Mm, hard not to take that to heart. <laughs> I know. They're probably like, no, we don't want it to be quite that graphic. We're gonna I know that lean left. I, I know that all of the there are like a couple of different directors that were thrown around and a couple of different screenwriters and there was a lot of stuff. I didn't read the book and I know Emma, you're going to talk about the book, right? Yeah, sure am. Okay. Anyway, we'll t- I'll talk about the story of how the fight went down, but it ultimately was directed by Mary Heron. Um, she doesn't have a long CV, um, but it's a pretty significant one. She wrote um, or she directed. I shot Andy Warhol. Um, which is written about Valerie Solanas, who shot Andy Warhol. <laughs> hmm, <laughs> and also, interesting. It's, a little, it's interesting because she often gets framed now as a feminist um, director. And she, do, she doesn't not like the label. She doesn't dislike the label. But she is kind of like, I mean, I just write movies that include yeah, I just pers- write female perspectives. On, yeah, um, I just write based on my own experience. And in doing so, I, I yes. um, pass the, what is it? The test. Bechtel test. The, the Bechtel, Bechtel test. test, yeah. Does um, this movie actually pass the Bechtel test? I don't think it does. I don't think it does, and that's why I was thinking about it, and it seems very interesting that they're saying that she's a feminist director because I, I'll get to perception later, but I think that that is one of the critiques is that it is not a feminist movie. Oh, I could not disagree more, but I guess we'll get there when we get there. Um a lot of people have a lot of different opinions about this movie. I can't wait to tell mine. Um, so I feel hits <laughs> <laughs> the podcast. So Mary Heron, um, she was talking about um, feminism because obviously, whenever you write a movie about someone who uh, shot Andy Warhol and wrote the Scum Manifesto, which states that men ruined everything and it's up to women to fix it, um, it's very easy to get pigeonholed as a feminist director. Not that that's a bad thing. Um, but she said, I've, and, and I quote, I feel that without feminism, I wouldn't be doing this. So I feel very grateful. Without it, God knows what my life would be. And then she says, I don't make feminist films in the sense that I make anything ideological, but I do find that women get my films better. Women and gay men, maybe because they're less threatened by it or they see what I'm trying to say better. Oh, I love that. That makes me- I do too. I really respect her. And I also- um, I like the way that she's articulating that she's just creating works that are inevitably infused with her own experiences and that maybe that's something that sometimes when you're being honest about the female experience, you're kind of unbridled with it, that that can be threatening to, to some people. I just think she's really neat. <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. So she's neat. Uh, the cast is also uh, quite neat. So we have uh, Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman, um, Chloe Savigny as Jean, Justin Theroux as Timothy Bryce. Uh, his name is Timothy Price in the books. I, they, they make a lot of major changes and then like this very minor one. <laughs> yeah. And then we also have Reese Witherspoon as Evelyn. So, you know, um, a bunch of no-name actors. Oh, they, they have some other ones. They, it, I mean, it was stacked. I, they, I wrote down a couple of other ones. They had Jared Leto. Who you didn't mention. Did I not mention Jared Leto? No. <laughs> um, you did not mention Jared Leto. Josh Lucas, who if you don't recognize his name, you'd recognize his face. Because I remember watching it and being like, who is he? It's Josh Lucas. Um, also, Matt Ross. You're not going to tell me who Josh Lucas is? No, let me look it up. 
<laughs> you don't even know. Who I do. I do know who it is. I just like he's one of those his people number that's one a, fan. He's in like a bunch of stuff, and then when you see him, he's very handsome. Name one he looks movie. Like he's in a a movie called Oh, he was in Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> I've never seen Sweet Home. Oh, that guy. Yeah, thank yes, you very much. That guy. Yeah, he's got a real like southern energy. Yes, he does, and he has that oh like God. He was one of the businessmen on, on this um, movie. And Reese Witherspoon is in Sweet Home Alabama. What a very different movie. (laughs) I really want to hear about reception to this movie. But first, I have to dish on Christian Bale. So, and just like how this movie happened. I call this segment To Bale or Not To Bale. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Um, So this is all about how Christian Bale stuck through he literally held out for nine months and didn't take any auditions and didn't take any other movie offers because he was just holding out, waiting for other people to bail out of the movie. Oh, interesting. And so while Bale was actually uh, Mary Heron, the director, that was Bale's, I'm sorry, that was Mary Heron's number one choice. It was, she was like, I want it to be Bateman, done. And he was like, absolutely done. And they had like a handshake deal like literally a handshake. Like they didn't have any cash on the table, no contracts, nothing. She so was just like, me, you, let's do this. I like these then, two human beings. They're no nonsense. They know what they want. They're, they know what they want. Oh, Heron takes no shit. Oh, Heron takes absolutely no shit from the studio because Lion Gate is like, mm, no. Oh, here's another thing. Mary, Mary Heron, she was like, okay, we got bail. And then she got Defoe and Leto. Mm, that's which are a wise like, move. Yeah, like really strong moves. And then the studio's like, mm, not Bale. So they put him on the bench. And then they pursued Edward Norton, which I think would have been, I like him a lot, but no. Oh, I actually do know a little bit about this. This will feed into some of my content later. Um, one of the reasons I think that they were so interested in in Jared Leto, or not Jared Leto, one of the Edward reasons Norton. they were so interested in Norton is because they had just done Fight Club. So he was hot off the press from Fight Club. Oh, yeah. I think that would have hurt them more than it helped them. I agree. Um, so in that, and on that same vein, they wanted to. They wanted Edward Norton, or more strongly, they wanted Leo DiCaprio, which I think. Anyway, they, I feel like he was a, a option B for so many movies that he's not been in. You know, I, yeah, which is insane to me and so they didn't want Bale because he they didn't think he was famous enough and so they went and they got Leo DiCaprio wow um his manager deserves a raise except for um Mary Heron was not having any of this she was super adamant she's like she wouldn't even meet with him she's probably like I heard he was a dick oh is Leo DiCaprio a dick I don't know I think I don't want to I know he does a lot of good stuff for the environment I know he just is one of those person who always has like a twenty something year old babe, and he it's like does. just seems sleazy. And I've heard just random things, mostly on like Reddit. So who knows how reliable they are? But <laughs> so just, he just doesn't. I'm suspect. straight from his own mouth. I think he's sus. Okay, don't mince words. But she didn't want him, not because she thought he sucked, but because uh, he was right off of Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. So he was kind of this teen heartthrob. And she's like, have you read this book? (laughs) You're about to go a real different direction. Are you prepared for that? Not only did Mary Heron not want DiCaprio and wouldn't even meet with her, uh, wouldn't even meet with him, he had no interest in her either. Like the Lionsgate, the studio came to him, was like, we want you. 
to be Patrick Bateman. And he's like, great, here's a short list of replacement directors. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like Oliver Stone, Danny Boyle, Martin Scorsese. Um, And then he was like, and here's a completely new script from this completely other person. That's extra. I stand by what I said about Leo DiCaprio. (laughs) Too much. (laughs) Also, think back to what I said about their budget only being $7 million. So Leo wanted $21 million. How much did they end up paying bail? Not $21 million. Yeah. <laughs> the whole movie was seven. Yeah. I don't know. Probably a firm handshake and he got to keep the suit. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, Leo eventually, like literally this whole time, Mary Heron's like fucking pissed. Bale is just anxious and waiting it out because he's like, I, Bale really was like, no, I think Leo's going to give it up. It's, I don't think he's going to take it. And Leo was kind of stringing him along. But then he left to do the beach. Um, which I haven't seen, but I did look up their return on investment. So, okay, I want to hear how the beach did. Okay, poorly. So, like, it doesn't sound like it did poorly, but it, it does did poorly. because what is the beach? I that doesn't sound very <laughs> familiar. And American Psycho sounds very familiar. I mean, I think so. I mean, it was a well, mm, it was not well received. So the budget. Let's go to the budget. So the budget for the beach was fifty million, in compared to like the oh, sad, pathetic little seven million of American Psycho. And in the box office, it made $144 million. But that's still, and that sounds really good, but that's still a lower return on investment than American Psycho. So I know, I know that there are a couple of similarities um, between The Beach and American Psycho. I know they're both based on a novel. Um, oh, wait, I guess that's it. That's the only similarity. <laughs> I don't. And also that movie was really steeped in controversy over its depictions of Thailand. And Leo actually got nominated for a Razzie. Um, he <laughs> lost to John Travolta. <laughs> it sounds about right. But none of that mattered anyway because Heron refused to meet with Leo and it, it didn't happen. So su- Bale held out and then Leo was like, nah, I don't want it. So then you think he's going to get it. It's been nine months. But then Lionsgate offers it to, to Ewan McGregor. And at this point, Bale is at his tipping point. And so he straight up went to McGregor personally and just like begged him not to do it. And he turned it down since he's a good friend. Oh, that's so, really nice. Yeah. So at this point, Lion gave, Lion Gates gave in and they let Heron and Bale take over on the condition that the budget would not exceed $10 million. Okay. Which is offensive because they were looking for money to give Leo $21 million. But you know what? Screw them because they did it for $7 million. And like in your own yeah. words, they had a stacked cast. They so they really did a did. really good job. Yeah. I don't know how. That's a great point, Kate. I don't know how they paid... All of those cast I guess a lot of them got famous maybe afterwards. They did. A lot of them got famous because of American Psycho. Right. But a lot of them didn't. But you know what? I'm just really proud of them. So you go Bale. <laughs> you go Heron. You go fuck yourself, Lionsgate. But yeah. I do – and I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Bale's body for this movie. <laughs> so – in a word, terrifying. So we all know that mm-hmm. Christian Bill is like not afraid to go like ham on some pre-filming body changes. I remember reading something about like the machinist and then he went from the machinist into Batman, I think. Is that right? If I recall, he went he went from the first Batman where he was like beefcake to the machinist where he literally was on a diet of like I think a- apples and cigarettes. Ugh. Something unhealthy. If you've seen the movie, mm. <laughs> and, and then he went right on back and like double beef caked for the second Batman. Yes, yes, yes. 
And then I know, like, I think he, like, hurt his back, like, with his, like, sudden weight gain that he did when he was doing Dick Cheney. Shocker. Yeah. But for this movie, he wanted to really capture, like, the narcissism of Bateman. And so he worked out for three hours a day with a trainer. Oh, my gosh. That's, like, a quarter of your waking day. (laughs) But one more more fact about Christian Bale, and I'll let you talk about reception— so Bale actually, according to Heron, she said that Bale was really struggling with the role, which is understandable. It's a complicated role. Until he watched an interview of Tom Cruise on Late Night with David Letterman. And he's, in her words, she said, yeah, he was struck by Cruise's energy and, and I quote, intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my God. I love that. It kind of, um, I'm, I'm glad I watched it without knowing that fact, but I'm very excited to go watch it again and just see Tom Cruise chainsawing some women. I mean, that's beautiful that he channeled the vapidness of Tom Cruise. Wow. I agree. It is beautiful. Now, tell me, tell me, tell me. Tell me about the reception. Well, okay, so first, before I talk about American Psycho, the movie, I want to actually talk a little bit about American Psycho, the book. Yeah, that that sounds good. So when this book came out, um, it was initially declined by Simon & Schuster. So they decided that it was – there were too many aesthetic differences. (laughs) That's one way to say it. Yeah. (laughs) What could they be referring to? To put it kindly. So they declined it, um, but it was eventually purchased by a publishing company called Vintage Books. Despite that, it did not have a hard copy out until 2012. Wait, really? Mm -hmm. So there were paperbacks out, and there were – a lot of them are shrink-wrapped – and there were also eventually some deluxe paperbacks, but there wasn't a hard copy until the 10s, the 2010s. Remind me who wrote this book. So the author was Brett Easton Ellis. Damn, you go Easton Ellis. <laughs> yeah. So he actually, whenever this came out, he also received death threats and hate mail. Oh. Um, but some people liked it. So <laughs> <laughs> it was, it, to say the least, it was very divisive. Um, and really had people feel in a certain kind of way. So I have a couple of reviews. One's from the Los Angeles Times. And this is from the perspective of the author. He says, the one good review in the national press was from the Los Angeles Times, and it resulted in a three-page letter section of all these people canceling their subscription. So literally, yeah, three three pages of people canceled their (laughs) subscription to the LA Times after they um, gave it a good review. Okay, I, I'm confused how why so many people had such strong opinions against this book whenever it wasn't well distributed. So it was distributed, but it was distributed with a lot of caveats. So there were restrictions in Germany and Australia and New Zealand. They would have like an N17 kind of warning on it. A lot of the times, as I mentioned, they would shrink wrap the book so that you couldn't preview it or your child couldn't, you know, flip through it as you're at Barnes and Noble or things like that. Um, something, I think one thing that was very polarizing. So during the trial of this Canadian serial killer named Paul Bernardo, there was actually a copy found in his room. Um, oh, that's not great press. It is it for a while. That book was associated with, or hypothesized to be like his, you know, inspiration for all of his killings, which it ultimately was debunked, but that just gave yeah. more reason for people to, to hate it. 
Yeah, with all due respect, um, killers are going to kill on their own, not because of a book they read, a fictional book they read. Um, That is a dark comedy, intelligent satire. It's, can we just, yeah, no, I just have to get that out. No, I I actually really like this story, and I'll get to the positive reviews. But at, to, to round out the negative reviews, I just have to share something that I found so interesting. Okay, so there were, as I alluded to, there were some people who were thought that this was an anti-feminist book and thought it was, you know, portrayed hatred and violence against women. One of those people, super interestingly, was Gloria Steinem, who, who oh, biggest no. twist of all, is the stepmother of Christian Bale. No, I didn't know that. I know. Shut up. I know. That was was fascinating enough when you're like, Gloria Steinem doesn't like him. I know. So it's, oh shit. That just, Mm. yeah, that blew my mind. That's a stepmom? Apparently. I have no idea how that worked or or what, but apparently she didn't like it. Well, she didn't get it. Well, you know who did get it? A man named Henry Bean. That's right, Henry Bean. <laughs> so this is uh, uh, obviously a reviewer. Um, his comments on it was were that, quote, the novel subtly and relentlessly undercuts its own authority, and because Bateman, unlike, say, Nabokov's unreliable narrators, does not hint at a truth beyond his own delusions, American Psycho becomes a wonderfully unstable account. The most persuasive details are combined with unlikely incidents until we're not only unsure what's real, we begin to doubt the existence of reality itself. I thought that was a very interesting... That's very uh, well-written. <laughs> yeah, a very interesting and well-articulated opinion. So all of these people were up in arms about it. Um, and for a while, Brett Easton Ellis was afraid to talk about it. Uh, the author was afraid to talk about it. Yeah, you said he got death threats. Exactly. So it wasn't until 2010 that he really opened up on what led him to write this book. And here's a quote of him kind of explaining that to uh, um, audiences. He said that Bateman was crazy the same way I was. He did not come out. <laughs> Kate's <face>. Strong opening. <laughs> I know it is. So he did not come out of me sitting down and wanting to write a grand sweeping indictment of yuppie culture. It initiated because of my own isolation and alienation at a point in my life. I, Kate's face. I'm sorry, I can't. She's just looking more and more horrified because she's going from thinking, wow, this man's a genius. The way, And instead it's like darker because he's somewhat inspired by his own life minus the murder. That's exactly what my face says. Yes, it is. So to continue, okay. it's the, the rest of the quote goes, I was living like Patrick Bateman. <gasps> I I was slipping into a consumerist kind of void that was supposed to give me confidence and make me feel good about myself, but just made me feel worse and worse and worse about myself. That is where the tension of American Psycho came from. It wasn't that I was going to make up the serial killer on Wall Street. High concept. Fantastic. It came from a much more personal place, and that's something that I've only been admitting in the last year or so. I was so on the defensive because of the reaction to that book that I wasn't able to talk about it on that level. That was in 2010. Oh no. Um isn't that okay. wild and kind of unsettling? That, it's not that bad. He just he doesn't mean literally, right? I he means I don't think he means literally, but I find it interesting it's a that he's like I wasn't intentionally dark. I was just coming from such a dark place that suddenly I was writing a murder who killed everyone. Yeah, no wonder he he's probably his agent that was like, "No, you can talk to no one about this book. Keep that's an any thought, Ellis. Keep that as an any thought." <laughs> 
<laughs> any thought. Yes. I think that um, that was for sure a very um, strong, strong uh, perspective that maybe mm-hmm. the audiences weren't ready for upon initial release of this book. I mean, it's hard not to take that as I wrote this because I want to murder people. <laughs> like, it's hard not to interpret it that way. He just had a lot um, of feelings and a lot of bitterness about culture of Wall Street or whatever. So Just like Patrick Bateman. <laughs> just like – he really relates to him, a uh, spirit animal. So that's enough oh, about – Oh, God. <laughs> that's enough about American Psycho, the book. Now let's talk a little bit about the reception of American Psycho, the film. So okay. as we've mentioned, in 2000, it was adapted for a film – um, as a promotion for the film, I thought this was very interesting. You could actually register to receive emails from, quote, Patrick Bateman, supposedly emails he was oh, writing to cool. his therapist. These emails were written by a writer, and then they were attached to the film and approved by Ellis, the author, and they followed Bateman's life since the events in the film. Isn't that kind I of interesting? I would absolutely sign up for these emails. Right? Especially th- since they're being written by an actual, like, movie writer. writer. So you would imagine yeah, it's that like they a would follow book. up pretty well. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so good. I thought that was pretty cool. So in one word, like the film, or like the – so in one word, like the book, this was polarizing, as you've mentioned and as I've sort of alluded to. Um, it did receive positive reviews, but they were mixed into that some very um, hateful comments. But among the positive reviews, uh, Sundance Films really liked it. It was received very well there, and they called it, quote, the next Fight Club, which kind of goes with what I was saying about how this movie was on the heels of Fight Club, so people were kind of looking at it as another psychological thriller and trying to Mm -hmm. compare the two inevitably. Um, It actually had 18 seconds of it removed in order to get a R rating. Yeah, Which that's, makes me, I, I, I did read about that, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I know. Like, what possibly? I don't need to what know. What was in those 18? I looked up what was in those 18 seconds. I didn't watch it, but we didn't miss anything. I'll just say that. Okay, beautiful. I imagine that it was more gore from the book, and I think that the movie it wasn't, pulls a little bit from the gore. Oh, really? It wasn't. No, it was just straight up him having violent sex with prostitutes. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't need that. Also, 18 seconds is a lot of seconds. Yeah, it is. Like, I was like, oh, maybe that was a good call, you guys. I hope it all wasn't all one scene. That's a lot. Um, I'm imagining it as one scene, and I'm glad it's gone. And I'm just gonna think of it that way. I think it was effective enough with like when he was having sex, and then just like posing and like flexing his biceps, and just like basically <laughs> pointing at himself. Like, I think we all got the point across with that, and how like harsh and unkind he was being. I don't think it was him being harsh and unkind. I thought he was just being narcissistic and hedonistic yeah he was i think that's probably maybe that's a better way of phrasing it but he was harsh and he was unkind (laughs) (laughs) maybe i'm that's that's putting it mildly he's a serial killer before he he, like was like axing people and stuff he was axing people from the beginning he was i just mean the way he treated the prostitutes was one might say harsh and unkind yeah no shit emma (laughs) Okay. All right. All right. Back to the back to the reception. What a hot take. <laughs> okay. Well, Kate, what do you think? If you haven't already cheated, what do you think? Rotten cheat. Tomatoes rated this. Both critics and audience. I want your percentages. I mean, critics is always higher unless it's something like for children. So I'll say eighty-seven for critics and sixty-nine for people wait what are they called audience <laughs> so, for plebeians the, the plebeians gave it a so 
Kate, your theory worked out. That since this was a movie for children, the audience liked it better. <laughs> <laughs> the audience liked it better. Yeah, they did. So oh, wow. it got a 70% from critics, which just for what it's no. worth, there are 150 critics making up that percentage. And then from 300,000 audience reviews, it got 85%. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was really well received by um, the general public, or as Kate would call them, the serfs. I didn't call them serfs. I just forgot the word for audience. If that, if they're serfs, I am also a serf. <laughs> and I'm not even going to make you guess IMDb because we all know it's in the sevens. This one was 7. a 7.6, so held its okay. own. Oh, that's very good. No, 7.6 is good. Okay. Well, then it did very well. A whole 7.6. <laughs> it did really well. Oh, that's good. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm okay with that. Yeah. So one critique was from the New York Magazine and Vulture who quoted, Clearly, Harrison is sold on the Bateman as a metaphor bit, and like Ellis, she overconceptualized it. So basically thought they they were laying it on a little too thick. It's a satire. <laughs> but the audience comments were more favorable. Tasha J says, excellent, yeah, Tasha. <laughs> excellent adaptation of the book. It dials down the gore and plays with the dark humor and 80s setting to great effect. Harsh C. Can you guess? Sure. Can you guess what kind of ne- what kind of comment he's going to have? A negative one. <laughs> yeah. So harsh C says that it was deliberately ambiguous and confusing, leaving you wondering what happened to the movie, let alone what message the author is trying to convey. They failed storytelling, and the tediousness makes this oh. a very dull film. Well, so harsh is just think, harsh in our vibes, in my I opinion. I think that's a little harsh. My favorite review, though. Wait, no, wait, wait, wait. Hold on, but I. I do – I see – there's a negative truth to that. But keep going. Keep going. <laughs> well, I just – let me conclude the comments with my favorite comment from Daniel M. Who says, feed me your cat, 9.75 <laughs> out of 10. <laughs> see, he gets it. Daniel gets it. Okay. I just want to say one more thing and – I'm really, really sad that Chris is missing this because American Psycho was very briefly a Broadway musical. (sighs) Kate, I am so glad that you mentioned the Broadway musical because that is actually going to be mentioned and um, explored just a little bit in what I have fashioned for you, which is a quick little quiz. How do you feel about that, Kate? I feel... I feel confused by that, Emma. <laughs> I think it's only fair. I was, you know, I was brought into the show with a very abrupt quiz. So I'm going to give you an abrupt quiz. So this quiz is about American Psycho. And not only is it about American Psycho, it's about American Psycho and all the things that came out of American Psycho and preceded American Psycho. So we're just so casting we're- a really broad net. Okay. So it's including the musical. It is including the musical. It is potentially including the book. It is including anything that is tangentially related to American Psycho. So I should warn you, I did watch the musical. You did watch the musical? Yeah. Okay. Well, then, Kate, you will ace this. Okay. All right. So this is just five short questions. So first of all, number one, which of these was not a song featured in American Psycho the musical? A. Okay. Killing Spree. B. That's in the musical. Card Shark. C. Oh, I don't know. You are what you wear. D. Mistletoe Alert. Um, I'm gonna go with Card Shark. Uh, no, no, no. That's definitely in the musical. That's definitely there. Final answer. No, Kate. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna call it. I'm gonna go with Card Shark. 
You are right, Kate. It was really just called Cards. So I like I haven't watched the musical, but I do have some criticisms or critiques of the names of these. Mistletoe You alert. are not allowed to. You are what you wear. No. Killing spree. No. Cards. I will absolutely not. I will no. I, I will take no criticisms of the musical until we talk about it and in detail at the end of the walkthrough. Okay. I'll hold off on I that. will take no criticisms. But you it's know what, Kate? a masterpiece. You know what, Kate? You've done great so far. Card Shark is indeed not a real song. It was just Ooh. called Cards. <laughs> so a, another musical-related question for you that I'm sure you will ace. So Duncan Cheek, the songwriter, won a Grammy and two Tony Awards for writing songs in this Broadway hit. Oh, what's his name again? Duncan Cheek. All right. Give me the multiple choice. Don't have a multiple choice for this one. I can make one up. That's rude. I gave you multiple choice. You know what, Kate? You said You know that how many you... Broadway musicals there are? A million. Okay, I'll give you four. Mean Girls. Well, no, that's Tina Fey, and you and I both know that. <laughs> okay, so so A, Shrek, the musical. B, Spring Awakening. There's no way he did Spring Awakening. C, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. How old is this guy? <laughs> Duncan Cheek, you interpret. Okay. What's in what's D? D was Wicked. Did he do Wicked? What is that your final answer? No, there's no fucking chance. Wait, what was A? a? Shrek the musical? I vote Shrek the musical. He did Spring Awakening. Shut the fuck up. Right? No, he did not. I could not believe this man did Spring Awakening, which won a Grammy and two Tonys. <laughs> Okay. All right, Gate. All you're right, one, Duncan Sheik. You're one for two. Um, number right. three, okay. the world premiere of the musical starred this British sensation as Patrick Bateman. This are these all about the musical? <laughs> no, no, no. I have two that are not. Okay, give me give me the names. I'll get okay. it with the name. Okay, cool. So, A, Matt Smith from Doctor Who. No. B, Daniel Radcliffe from Harry Potter fame. No. C, Jamie Dornan from Fifty Shades of Grey and also The Fall. What's D? D, Nicholas Holt from Skins. I'm sorry. Are you I'm, – I'm very confused. Are, are you asking me who the star of the musical is? I sure is? am, Kate. It's Jamie. What's his name? Jamie Dornan from Fifty Shades of Grey and yeah, The Fall. Yeah. Yeah. It's Matt Smith from Doctor Who. His name's Matt Smith? Mm-hmm. Shit. That's okay, I'm sorry. Kate. You're I have one hole. I failed you, Matt Smith. I think, oh you're, I, Kate, I think you're gonna make it up with these last two. I really do. Okay. So number right. four. When Bateman takes his sheet to the cleaners, what does he tell the girl? Cran apple. You know what, Kate? The options. <laughs> I won't even bother. Kate, you are right. It was cran apple juice that he it was says is the red stain, Which is so much better than red wine or blood or tomato juice. I thought that was great. <laughs> okay, and this one's for all the marbles. Number five, okay. what color and typeface does Patrick use on his new business cards? <gasps> oh, no. Would you like multiple choice? I have to. A, off-white aerial. B, oh, I think eggshell romalian. These are all of their cards. C, bone Sicilian rail. That one. D, pale nimbus corvisa. It's Bone and the other one. Yes, Kate, you're so good. Yes, it is Bone <laughs> Sicilian Rail. You may not know yes. the musical as well as you thought, but you sure do know the movie. So with a whole okay. three out of five, you pass and may remain president of the club. 
Thank you. I'm, it's an honor. <laughs> All right, Kay, I'll give it back to you. I'm, I'm really, okay, that was fun. I am excited to talk about the musical. I watched it um, as men in bootlegged pieces from the internet, um, and I'm really excited to talk about it, but I do want to talk about that at the end. Also, what I want to, actually, you know what? I was going to talk about the ending at the end, but I want to talk about it right now. All right, Kate. I want to talk about the elephant in the room, which is, did he kill those people? Did he actually murder anyone? The ATM cat, the police chase scene. What the fuck is going on in Paul Allen's apartment? Mm-hmm. I want to, we got to talk about this now. Let's hear it. What did she say? What did the uh, writer say? Or director? Well, I mean, the director says, yeah. <laughs> the director says, yes. Basically, she, her one regret for this movie is she left it more open to interpretation than she realized. And, or she kind of wanted to leave it a little open to interpretation, but they, he just, he killed them. And I didn't realize that. I, I thought kinda, it was all in his head. I was hoping that he did, not because, I mean, that's scary and bad, but just because of, I thought it fed really well into this sort of toxic masculinity. Also, like the fact that he's doing it and confessing and people still aren't taking him seriously because of how he presents himself. It's, I, yes. It's how he presents itself, but even more than that, it's just the inherent narcissism of this 80s Wall Street male-centered culture. Mm-hmm. And I did not really put this together. And on the fr- I didn't put it together on the first viewing. The first viewing was very, what the hell is going on? On the second viewing, I picked it up more. Um, but the reason he gets away with it is because everyone is so self-absorbed. Literally, no one knows who anyone is. Oh, that's really great because I did pick up that people are very regularly using the wrong name for the wrong person. Yes. So I didn't, I, like the first time you watch the movie, the like one of the first scenes, they're in this restaurant. They're all like doing blow on their hands or something ridiculous. And they're like, oh, look, like that's Paul Allen over there. And they point to some guy who's not Paul Allen. And then, but then Patrick Bateman's like, no, that's not Paul Allen. Paul Allen's over there and points to another guy that's not Jared Leto. And that's something I didn't catch on the first viewing because I hadn't met Jared Leto yet. Um, but I was like, wait, I don't think you know who that is. Also, I don't know if you noticed this, but literally everyone who works at his company, who works at Pierce and Pierce, they're whenever they're throwing all their cards down, did you notice that they're all vice presidents? Yes. I, I So I didn't <laughs> notice that until I was making up that quiz question. I went to like look to pair figure out who was who and they were all, yeah, vice, all presidents. vice presidents. And I love that all Everyone's- their cards look the same. Like they like, Maybe two of them have some slightly different, like, texturing to them, but several of them look exactly the same. But not to him. To him, it's exactly. like, that is grounds for me murdering you in your own apartment. It also goes well with the the fact that he keeps just, like, slipping in murderous comments that no one picks up. And it's like, is he actually saying those or is he not? And I always, I always, always like, I think he is saying them because, like, no one's paying attention nor are they taking him seriously. Well, like, the first time you're like, oh, well – he definitely could have said that whenever he's taught, whenever he is um, trying to play with, pay with a card at the nightclub and they're like, we only take cash. And then she's like, he's like, okay. And she turns around and it's loud. And he's like, I want to like bathe in your blood. (laughs) And you're like, Oh shit. He definitely said that. But then later it gets harder and you're like, wait, Mm -hmm. is no one really even like tying in. And I think that's the whole point of like the emails to his therapist bit they did for the, Mm -hmm. um, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, for the promo for the movie? 
yeah, for the p- for promotional purposes, he's emailing his therapist multiple times. And it's like, hey, did this, kill that guy, mm-hmm. did this and did that. And no one's doing anything about it because no one cares about anyone but themselves. Mm-hmm. The whole movie, Paul Allen does not know who this guy's name. Like the whole movie, everyone is just so firmly focused and getting rich and showing everyone else how rich they are and doing cocaine and getting reservations at Dorsia. Like no one is paying attention, even at the end of the movie. So this is this is the part that really seals that everything was definitely happening. At the end of the movie, whenever he's talking to his lawyer, and his own fucking lawyer doesn't know who he is. Mm-hmm. His lawyer's use is like calls him someone else. The whole movie, Paul Allen thinks that Bateman is this guy named Marcus Halberstram, and he never corrects that mistake, like not once. Mm-hmm. And Bateman just like brushes it off. He's like, Yeah, of course he thinks I'm him. Because, you know, he also works here. He does the exact same thing I do. Duh, you're all vice presidents. He also has a penchant for Valentino suits and Oliver people's glasses. Marcus and I even go to the same barber. And then in that same scene, Alan calls McDermott Baxter. Like, <laughs> he's, he, he, no one knows or cares what anyone's name is. And then whenever you get to the ending, his lawyer calls him someone else. And he's like, no, it's me. It's what's his fucking name it's me it's Patrick Bateman and he's like ah oh, you made it your joke was funny but you made a mistake everyone knows that Patrick Bateman is like a fucking creep yeah <laughs> and then they also, he also at that time is defense says oh that's not possible because I just had dinner with Paul Allen yes. even if Paul, Paul yeah, Allen's dead at that point that's that's the shoe drop moment when he's like okay Paul Allen can't be dead because I just had dinner with him and the first time I watch it I'm like oh okay so it's all in his head because we're, that's following right after these ridiculous scenes of overhyped grandeur. I'll talk about it in just one second, but like the scene with the police chase and mm-hmm. like stuff like that. But basically, he doesn't even know who Paul Allen is. He probably did have dinner with someone. He probably thought it was Paul Allen. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't Paul Allen. And the the other thing that seals this is whenever he goes back to Paul Allen's apartment. And this is something that bothered me for like days after I first watched this movie. What the fuck is going on in Paul Allen's apartment? Mm -hmm. Because there were bodies, tons and tons of women's bodies in this apartment, in this beautiful apartment Paul Allen's so proud of that overlooks Central Park. It's like the most expensive apartment that any of them have. And then the next day it's under, it's not just like for sale. It's undergoing extensive renovations. Like the carpet's all been taken out. They're painting over everything. And the thing that, and you could be like, oh, okay, maybe he was just using this like space for his fantasies. But then he talks to the real estate agent um, who's showing the house. He talks to the woman who's showing the house and she's like very, cre- she, she tunes into his vibe fast. Mm-hmm. She does. And, and she's like, oh, okay are you my two o'clock? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm your two o'clock. And he's like, oh, did you, she's like, oh, did you see the, did you see the ad in the times? And he's like, yes, in the times. And she's like, well, there was no ad in the times. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think, I think you should leave. And you're kind of like, is she doing that just cause he's creeping her out? Like this is kind of a weird way to act. And she's extremely stern and like, get out. Don't make a you fuss. You shouldn't be here. Get out. I don't want this exactly. to be an issue and neither do you. Okay. So again, we're tuning back into Everyone is taking care of themselves. No one gives a shit about anyone else. This woman oversees this property. I'm sure she found bodies, right? Paul Allen's been missing. She finds all these bodies. And her instinct isn't, oh, shit, I need to go to police. Because think about what that would do business-wise. 
She's going to turn her best-selling property. It's this huge apartment overseeing the park. Mm -hmm. Like, she's going to turn that into a crime scene. No one's going to want to fucking live there. Mm -hmm. Or is she going to flip that shit immediately and show it the next day? Oh, I love that. I actually really, really like mm -hmm. that. And then whenever this, this creepy guy comes in, she puts those pieces together fast. She's like, I've been waiting for you. Get the fuck out of this apartment. We don't need to deal with this. Go. Oh, I love that. I really, really like that. That makes sense to me. I, I buy that. And there can be points, like there are points when you're like, this is definitely not happening, right? Like, for example, um, like that, for me, it was that scene where those two hookers come over, he's videotaping himself and looking in the mirror. And it's like, okay, you probably don't look as cool as you think you do. Like, I feel like we're seeing it through his eyes of him being like, yeah, I'm a cool guy. And then there's more obvious ones like the ATM who's saying to feed – ATM who's telling him to was, feed the stray cat. I thought that was realistic. No, I mean I, not for me. Oh, my God. But for somebody – like someone who's crazy and like losing their sanity progressively, I thought – don't use, don't use the word crazy. I thought for someone who is losing their sanity for that to happen – I was. I just assumed that he was becoming an unreliable narrator, but I still thought that he was trying to feed a, a kitten into the machine. When I think he was. the hardest part for me to believe was the like you mentioned and how you described it as a grandeur or um, this grand, yes, yeah, this grand police chase. I thought that was the point where I was like, "There's no way that this isn't ending with someone being arrested." I don't like, okay, so we see the police chase, but I think we're seeing it through Bateman's eyes and he's just like nose diving into this total psychosis. And like, for example, he shoots at the police car and it blows up. And even Bateman like looks at his gun and is like, what the fuck? (laughs) And like throws it. And then there's those like helicopters going off. It's, I think it's through his eyes and things are not, you like you cannot trust his narration. But you can piece together what everyone else is saying and what everyone else is doing and put together. This stuff is really happening. Just some of it isn't as it seems. But absolutely, after reading all the things I've read, including from the writer and the director, he definitely killed all those people and just no one gives a shit. Oh, I like that. I mean, I don't like that he killed people, but I, oh, I, I find that <laughs> interesting and, and well done. I think so too. Should we just dive in very quickly through this movie we've just completely talked about. So the movie set in the late 80s. We have Patrick Bateman, whose life revolves around being the coolest cat on Wall Street, having no pores, having a 12-pack, never eating ice cream, having business cards with, what was the font, Emma? Sicilian Rail. With Sicilian Rail. Because he like describes That's- like it's something they call Sicilian Rail. He's so proud of himself. Uh, and it's him. He's just keeping up appearance, ever keeping up appearances. Everyone's just keeping up appearances. And his fiance, Evelyn, who is Reese Witherspoon, and all of his very now famous actor associates, who he hates all of them. He hates his fiance. He hates his associate. He hates everyone, but he loves his life. And he's just the most materialistic guy that you could ever meet we get to see his morning exercise we get to see him peel that mask uh, off his face thought that that was such a good a good introduction to who this person is because it was so disturbing it felt very much like i i wonder if dexter the intro to dexter was somewhat inspired by the vibes that this does where it's something that is benign in its nature but is so sinister in its context 
I feel that. And it's also like a metaphor, right? He's taking, it's like a mask that Mm -hmm. he wears and he's just doing everything that he thinks he's supposed to do. He's buying the most expensive furniture. He's getting the best reservations. Even the way he talks about his music, it's literally just him like word vomiting music reviews in this like weird fake tone mm-hmm. we get we get this great scene with the business cards that emma talks about if you haven't seen the movie at least go watch the scene it's weirdly funny all of the co-workers are um marveling at paul allen's card right mm-hmm. everyone everyone's throwing all their cards in the in the ring to be like oh you think that's sexy look at this one and my favorite thing is that their card holders i i didn't grow up in the i wasn't a business person in the 80s so i didn't have a <laughs> card holder despite what you but may they think. all I would, in my mind, a card holder has many cards to give to many clients. These all have one. It's like very exclusive. The way that they flip the open their card holders is sort of sexy and dangerous, like a cigarette lighter flicking that or like um, a holster for a gun or something. Yes. It's like they're reaching for their gun holster, but um, anyway, Paul Allen has the best business card, I guess, and it makes Bateman furious. And so he invites um, Paul Allen over to get dinner with him. I think he says he's at Dorzia. So I thought that this was interesting. So Dorzia gets brought up a lot in the beginning, and I think that's one of the things that made him so mad because he's trying to make reser- he tries to make reservations at Dorzia with his um like lover it's not his girlfriend it's uh the it's his friend's girlfriend yeah his friend's girlfriend <laughs> or wife um that he's cheating with and he tries to make this reservation at Dorzia which is a very exclusive restaurant um in New York City and this I think is I like really like the scenes that seem like the very first time that we get pick up that he's an unreliable narrator because he tries to make the mm-hmm. reservation and there's someone just laughing maniacally at him, which I don't think that, <laughs> I, that I don't think that the, whoever was the hostess was laughing maniacally at him, but I think he felt ridiculed by the fact yeah. that he was not able to secure a spot. So whenever they have that scene about the cards, if you, if you're like paying attention, you'll also hear that he, that Paul Allen is has to slip out early or something because he has reservations at Dorzia. And, yes. And that makes Bateman so mad. He's like, how the hell does he have reservations there? So it's just like <laughs> one thing after another. There's also in the Christmas scene, he is like theoretically maybe flirting with Patrick Bateman's girlfriend. So it's just all these things that are just really, really riling Bateman up against Paul Allen. I love how uh, openly Bateman – does not care for his girlfriend at that Christmas party. Oh, and I, she doesn't really care either. It was hilarious. The, the funny when I, I think the first moment that you know that this movie's gonna be kind of funny in a way, like in a dry, dark way, is when you're in that limo and there's no connection. He first of all, he just introduces to her as his supposed fiance, and, <laughs> and then whenever. Um, She's like, you know, I really think we should get married. And it's not – there's no romance to it whatsoever. It's just as if you're saying, I really think we should grab a bite at McDonald's. And he's like, I can. I have work. And it's just like, what? <laughs> like, Just the business-like manner and lack of any sort of passion or romance is amusing. Is that the same scene where she tries to cry? Oh, maybe. Or I don't is that think a, I caught that. No, Oh, no, that's later I, when she's at the table. Is that at the dinner up. table? Yeah, that's later And on. she's just not even a little bit crying. When she, he's trying to break up with her and she's like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. She's like, your <laughs> my friends, friends are your friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, you're talking about I thought the Reese Witherspoon scene? was really good in this movie. I did. I liked the Christmas scene where she's walking around with this pig 
which is just so like it's such a production of it. She's just walking around. And she's like, "Happy, happy Christmas, Mister Bateman." She, uh, pot bellies are such good pets. Like she's just so obnoxious. they're such good pets. And just, I think she puts antlers on his ears. Yeah, she <laughs> like, does. Like, Merry Christmas. And as like he's getting angrier, and angrier at Paul Allen, and like just really, and also Paul Allen doesn't know his name, and he's just all this is building. I do just want to really quick mention that. In between the the cards, I think it's pretty soon after the cards and before the Christmas scene is when he first stabs someone. Yeah, he kills the homeless man. He and kills the homeless man, which I thought was such an uncomfortable scene. It made me so 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 uncomfortable because he's belittling him as he's like like winding up to do it. But one thing I did just really quickly want to mention was that I recognized the actor, but I didn't know where I recognized him from. Did you? He's think he from was House familiar? of Cards. Yeah, he was from House of Cards. He it's his Reggie yeah. Kathy. He was he won a primetime Emmy for outstanding guest actor on House of Cards in 2015. He played Freddie Hayes, who's the owner of Freddie's Barbecue, and R.I.P. to him because he passed away recently. But I just he did he did he had um unfortunately oh, that makes he had lung me cancer. Sad. He had, he passed oh, away that's at 59. But um I just thought it was it was um yet another uh notable actor to add to the stacked cast yeah that totally counts okay even if they didn't realize it it totally counts exactly they didn't know they didn't know he was gonna go go on to win an emmy but he sure did good for him then we get um paul allen super drunk so that he can take him to quote-unquote dorsia it's very much not dorsia like i like that um and this is another thing about we're seeing things through bateman's eyes there's literally no one else in this restaurant he's at texarkana i think yeah, he's at Texarkana, and he gets him drunk, and then he takes him back to his apartment. And I'm not going to talk about the musical too much, but I will say this was a really funny scene in the musical. Like, it's 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 funny in the movie, but it's also extremely suspenseful mm-hmm. because Paul Allen's, like, on this chair drunk, and he's like, oh, what are these newspapers? You got a jog, like a little yeah. chow or something. <laughs> and so it's funny. Are you in and a raincoat? <laughs> Yes, that that was my favorite. He comes out in the raincoat. He's like, "Are you wearing a raincoat?" He's, like, "Yes, I am." I love that scene. That's probably my favorite scene, just in the iconic American Psycho ness of it. It is in in the musical. You can look up that scene specifically, especially I think on YouTube. Even um, it's potato quality, but you get to it. They add, they inject a lot of humor into it because the suspense is kind of gone. Mm-hmm. Like everyone knows that he's gonna freaking behead and chop up Paul mm-hmm. Allen. But it's just really extra funny. They have Huey Lewis in the news. The Hip to Be Square is like the absolute perfect song choice. I don't know how. It just is. I love it. He's like quoting, you know, these record reviews. And I love when he moonwalks back with the knife. (laughs) I mean, with the axe to the left of him. I just love that visually. I did too. Um, I like that they they balance it well with like really fucked up shit Mm -hmm. and then humor. Um, Then he, you know puts an axe in his head and so then then what happens he sends him off he well you know he quote packs oh, his bag right. and sends him off right so then then he um sends him sends him away he makes a phony message that is a actually pretty good leto impersonation <laughs> but it's also very clearly not him but you know it doesn't matter because no one's paying attention right yes i remember whenever i saw that initially i was like okay well police would hopefully deduce that's not the person but in this you know in this movie it makes sense that no one's paying attention so you're lucky if they recognize that as paul allen's voicemail let alone paul allen's voice yeah, on the exactly voicemail. exactly no one's leaving no one's paying attention 
Then we get to meet um then we get to meet Willem Dafoe, who is the private detective um who's looking for Paul Allen on behalf of his girlfriend. And um I just like every scene that he's in, but it terrifies me. And I'm weirdly rooting for Bateman. I don't wanna be. Yeah. But you're it's like, just like enjoying uh, watching the ride and kinda of, you wanna see where it goes. You don't want to take I wanna cut see where it goes. Yet. Yes. Which is maybe then he goes, why that reviewer was critiquing us. Yeah, he kind of hit the nail on the head a little bit. It's like, are y'all being indulgent? A little, but also I'm watching a movie. Fuck off. (laughs) Something really interesting that I actually read whenever he's doing the whole, you know, reviewing Huey Lewis in the news is that apparently in the book during the stream of, you know, it's from the perspective of Bateman's stream of consciousness and he would be recollecting what happened and he would just stop abruptly and then directly first person address the readers to critique the work of various 1980s pop music artists, which I thought was so creepy and a nice move. That's creative and I really like it. Yeah, so I I think not only was that a creative inclusion in the book, it's also I think they did a good job of incorporating that into the movie without necessarily having him just turn to the screen and and do that. But that kind of would have been cool too. I like how they did it, and you can thank uh, director Mary Heron for that one. <laughs> um, then we get to meet the two prostitutes that he takes home. Uh, he gets he tells them all about he plays a uh, susudio, mm-hmm. which I really <laughs> enjoyed. Um, and then he kills them. So, and again, this is in Paul Allen's apartment, which has become his murder den. And then we're at yet another fancy dinner where everyone's just thinking about themselves. And we have Lewis Carruthers, who is his lover's partner, who is a very clearly homosexual man. Mm-hmm. And he's and he's kind of adorable because he's not to the point that everyone else is. Like, he's very clearly on his way there. Mm-hmm. But he saw the business card thing not as a battle, but as, like, a cool sharing thing. Yes, because yes. he. Because then he's like, oh, I got a new business card too. <laughs> and I don't, you told the wrong person that. Because yes. Bateman's like, well, fuck you. And he follows him into the bathroom of this fancy restaurant. Probably would have gotten away with it. Except for then he puts his hands around Carruthers' neck. And he's like, and, and Carruthers is like, oh, Patrick, I've been waiting yeah. so long for this. <laughs> And starts kissing his hand. Mm-hmm. And then he runs away and to like calm himself down, he murders a model. And then he invites Jean to dinner. He brings Chloe Savigny into mm-hmm. this, that poor girl. In the whole movie, he's been just so offensive to her. And I can see, I can see someone who is looking through this um through a different lens than it was intended, seeing that as, oh, he's so sexist to her. This is such a sexist movie. And it's like N- no, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's not supposed to be good. Like yeah, he pulls the fact a nail that gun out in a minute. She needs to wear heels, and she's prettier than that, and should wear a dress. Is is not endearing yes. us to him. It's not. And whenever he's like, she, like she comes in, asks him, like, "Hey, are you okay?" And he's scribbling all that crazy shit in his journal that no one notices. And he's like, "I think this is a different scene." But he just looks at her. He's like, "Oh, by the way, Jean, uh, don't wear that outfit again." Mm-hmm. I also like, like. I know we've already passed this, but I just have to mention. The, I've got to return some videotapes and how that plays into it's, it's the best and the worst line in the movie best because I adore it worst because my fiance really likes <laughs> it and he so Nick is my fiance he's who showed me this movie all those moons ago and he had been saying he had been quoting that line mm-hmm. he would just out of context <laughs> but he would he would just say it like I'd be like what are you where are you going 
anytime I would say, where are you going? That option is on the table. And he'd say, I have to return some videotapes. And then he's like, will you watch American Psycho? And he said that line in the movie. I'm like, what the fuck, Nick? <laughs> I remember um, I remember you telling me about this and I hadn't seen American Psycho in a, like a very long time. And so whenever I heard that line, when I was watching it now, it gave me that much more joy, even though it's just like, it's hilarious anyway because it's such an awkward and suspicious thing to say to a detective suddenly. Like, I've got to return some videotapes. <laughs> I also really love, just because we've already skimmed over this part, whenever he's at the club doing drugs, when literally, like, one of the one of the people next to him is like, can you keep it down? I'm trying to do drugs. <laughs> I just thought that was, it just made me laugh. Anyway, he, he invites Jean over and who, despite her being treated like absolute dog shit the whole movie – is he, he? She's like the only person he holds in any regard mm-hmm. at all, because he doesn't shoot a nail gun in her in the back of her head. Although he picks up the nail gun, so let's not give him too much credit. Also, he, I hated like this was such a weird moment where he offers her ice cream. Mm, yeah, and he just watches her eat it, and she's like, "Oh, it's so good. Do you want some?" And he's like, "No, I can't eat that." <laughs> <laughs> and then she goes to put it down. And she just goes to put the set the spoon down on the coffee table, and he's like, in the carton. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, all right, you're blowing this bait, then. <laughs> yeah. But then he doesn't kill her, and she just, she he asks her to leave, and so she gets to live. I think that she is kind of the straight man for the movie, because you have all this craziness going around. You kind of need, I feel like a lot of the times you need a straight man in some context, and she's the one who actually is perceptive and is reacting to his oddities in his apartment as they are as oddities and like reacts to him correcting her skirt as like, okay, dude, you know, I I feel like she definitely plays the straight man. And she's the only one that later on sees all of his, his horrific drawings and has that's true and feel some way about them versus Reese Witherspoon. (laughs) Another hilarious scene is whenever he's trying to break up with her and he's scribbling on the table, like a little cartoon drawing of him murdering someone I think oh, it was with a chainsaw. With a chainsaw, it's literally the person he just murdered with a chainsaw, and she just doesn't notice. She just doesn't bother her. <laughs> doesn't bother her. So now we're back to oh, another person who's like sort of this. I, I I hesitate to use the term straight man because they both let things slide that they shouldn't. Gene mm-hmm. um, is one, and uh, the PI Willem Dafoe is the other. But both of them aren't in that inner circle. They're not the elite. They're not going making reservations at Dorzia and shit like that. So they're not they're not Wall Street brokers in the same way. No, they're not. But anyway, he's having lunch, um, and he lets um, Bateman know that uh, he doesn't suspect him <laughs> at all um, because apparently a colleague spotted Paul Allen <laughs> in London. So it's everything's fine, isn't that a relief? <laughs> it was definitely Paul Allen. And then, um, and that's the uh, another thing that I, the first time watching the movie, I'm like, why did he go to London? Like, that doesn't make a ton of sense. But I guess, I guess he didn't do it. And now I'm like, that wasn't fucking Paul Allen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. At the time, I was like, wait, why is this, this detective just takes hearsay that? Yeah, somebody said they saw him, so I think it's probably fine. <laughs> like, it's the gist of that. It's <laughs> case closed. So I don't. I think that that's not necessarily. You know, they're not part of the circle, like you're saying, but they there is such protection around the circle that at the people, the benefit of the doubt always goes to these, this elite group. Yeah, it does. We'll put, yeah, I agree. So at this point, um, Bateman realizes that he can kill whoever the fuck he wants, but also he's 
disturbed because he's like, no, I definitely killed him. He's dead. Why is no one paying attention? And then, oh God, poor Christy. So Christy is the prostitute, the first prostitute that he invites to his house, who, again, he names her Christy. And then he invites his friend over, Elizabeth, and they're listening to Whitney Houston. Mm -hmm. And everyone's like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? And he's literally just sitting there quoting a a record review about a Whitney Houston song. Oh, and did you notice, um, that's not actually like Whitney Houston singing. No one's singing. It's just like an instrumental version. No, I didn't. Yeah, it's like an orchestral it's like an instrumental version. And the reason that for that being Whitney Houston was like, please do not play Include my music. Me. <laughs> Fair enough, Whitney. Please don't make me a part of this. That's like when you hear uh, American Girl by Tom Petty. And yeah, it's you dead. Can't that not song think is dead. Of, um, Silence of the Lambs. So I can understand no. her trying to protect her work. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, but it, I mean, he's toxic extensively about her work, but nice. She tried. She did what she could. So then uh, this I kind of thought was like low-key funny is like they're having like a very ridiculous looking threesome, I guess. Mm -hmm. It looks like what you'd see in a play, like the sheets are just flying. And um, Christy, who is um, not into Bateman and sees through his shit, like just kind of like slips out under the covers and like leaves (laughs) and no one notices. Um, But then she just watches and he just starts stabbing the crap out of this girl and you see the cran apple go all over the sheets. <laughs> and we have that great scene where she's running. She's going into – she's trying to get out of this huge apartment. She keeps going into closets and finding all these bodies. And then we get that awesome scene where she's running down the stairs. And she's running and banging on everyone's door. And no one's answering the door. No one cares. Of course people hear her. Of course people hear him, hear Patrick Bateman screaming naked down the hallway with a chainsaw. That's like, a, such a good point. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, whenever you see it through the lens of of what they're trying to do, like now that you've told me a little bit more about it makes more sense, right? Yes, her take on it and what she was trying to accomplish, all all of the things that you're kind of, you scratch your head at make sense through that purview. Yeah. Anyway, he does he does that awesome thing where she's going down the spiral staircase um and he holds a chainsaw up <laughs> and it's still running and he like I'm do, I'm making the motion. How do I describe this? Uh, she's like, it looks like she's stirring a pot, but with the chainsaw. I was like, woman, go from like if she would just hug the outside rather than the inside, she would have been just fine. Well, I'm sorry. Would you have thought he's gonna drop a chainsaw on you? I would have thought I'm home free at that point. <laughs> nope. I would anyway, have thought he's gonna drop a chainsaw on me. Anyway, Bateman goes and he breaks off his engagement with um, Reese Weatherspoon. And this is where he starts going low-key crazy, (laughs) just a little bit. Um, That night is whenever he sees the cat. Like, he's just wandering around New York. And he sees the cat and he starts trying to feed the cat to the ATM. And then this old lady's like, what are you doing to that cat? And he just turns around and shoots her. Mm -hmm. And then there's this huge, the huge police chase that we talked about. And he kills, like, I think four cops. Mm -hmm. Um, he goes into a building and murders a security guard and the janitor. Mm-hmm. And then he calls his lawyer. That's right. Harold Carnes. That's his lawyer's name. And he leaves that huge confession. Talking about then he, the how next- he also tried their brains. Like I was, it got real dark. 
Some homeless people, maybe five or ten. Um, an NYU girl I met in Central Park. I left her in a parking lot behind some donut shop. And so the next day, he goes to Paul Allen's apartment. We have that great scene where that woman's like, mm, leave and let me sell this apartment and don't murder me. And then he just goes out with his other co-vice residents for lunch. That's when Gene finds the drawings while he's out. And he confesses everything to his lawyer, Carnes, at the restaurant. And he's like, why the fuck didn't you return my call? And then he's like, ha ha, that's so funny. And then he gets very serious. He's like, stop being creepy. I just had dinner with Paul Allen when I was in London. A, you're not and Patrick Bateman. B, I just hung out with Paul Allen. Yeah, reliable. Such a good lawyer. And then he has that very uh, dramatic ending where he says, this confession has meant nothing. And it ends. That's the That's it. That's such a good movie. Can I? It's it's a yeah, good let's movie. Let's just go ahead and, and I think we've, you know, I think we've gone ahead and said how we feel about this movie, which is positive. And I th- I think it constitutes horror. I really do. I don't think it's your typical. There's a monster under the bed, but I I think this counts as psychological horror for sure. I think it it definitely counts as horror. There's there's murder. There's suspense. There. I think you could go to the movie for different things but i definitely think horror fans i mean you know what let's hear what if, let's hear what our club members have to say if we'd love to hear what you have to say about this movie do you think it fits into the horror category yes no also what did you think of it did you did do you buy kind of the twist of all these people being so self-absorbed that everyone um neglects what's happening right in front of their eyes um if you do just send us if you have opinions and want to share them with us just shoot us an email also whenever we cover the next movie i want to just go ahead and say that we think it'd be a great idea if y'all shared your opinions on the next movie we cover um we'll select from those and we'll include them in our next podcast episode before we put this on our scoreboard i have to talk about american psycho the musical all right give it to us i just want to answer some some questions that I'm sure everyone has. Yes, it heavily features hip to be square. There, I think it actually has really impressive and clever set design. Mm -hmm. Like they do the murders really interestingly. Um, I think it got nominated for several awards specifically for the sound and set design, if I recall. That makes total sense because the set design was amazing. It's really humor forward, which I found delightful they preserve the best pieces of dialogue from the movie that we love um but they also add in new jokes to keep it kind of Should fresh I watch this? yes you can find it you have to watch in like pieces and chunks i'll do that i um, love if, a new if anyone musical. has a good put together version of this musical a good recording please let us know please share it it only had 81 performances it opened in 2016 and it closed in 2016 mm. Is it perfect? No. Does it contradict its own thesis on Bateman's essential emptiness and inhumanity? Yes. <laughs> Would I recommend it to someone unfamiliar with the show? Probably not. But you know what? The sets are good. The dialogue's funny. It keeps the period pop songs that set American Psycho apart mm-hmm. and that I really like. But it also has like original music for a musical. It's not another half-assed jukebox musical. No offense to my Mamma Mia crowd. I just, not for me. Yeah, not for me either. I I, I think it was done with earnest, and I actually really 
appreciated it. And you know, you you said it had eighty one um, shows in for Broadway. To give it full credit, it did start in London, and that was in two thousand thirteen. It was successful there. Then came to Broadway in two thousand sixteen, and then actually made it to Sydney in two thousand and nineteen. Um, I don't know how extensively it it was performed or how many times. Um, and I just thought it was super interesting. I stumbled upon this when I was doing my re- research. Um, that actually the Kickstarter, this was launched based off of a Kickstarter in 2013 by Ellis himself, the author. Wait, so this was Ellis's brainchild? Yes. <laughs> okay, I got mad respect for that man. It is kind of endearing that he's like, okay, we've taken it into a really dark direction. Let's kind of take it the other way and see what we can do with it as a musical. <laughs> I like that he wasn't too protective of his work to let that happen. Yeah, and I love that he was crowdsourcing it that's great it was like the people who loved the movie Mm -hmm. and the book ah okay yeah anyway we got to rank this so for me i'm just going to be very blunt this is top five for me i really liked it why don't you remind us of what the top five are yeah in order we got the thing um the 82 version obviously number two we got jennifer's body number three a quiet place number four the conjuring number five oculus this is number three for me. I like Jen- like Jennifer's body is just special to me, so I can't let that go. You haven't seen Jennifer's body, have so you? So I haven't. Unfortunately, I have not. So I'm definitely not going to try to fight for it to be above Jennifer- Jennifer's body because I don't think that's fair for me to do unless I've seen it myself. I-, I did listen to that episode, and I thought y'all made a very good argument for it. So I'm comfortable placing it number three, which is a pretty dang good spot. Very given- high. Yeah, given how-, how long this list is getting. So we hope you enjoyed us covering American Psycho. Again, a shout out to Carly who emailed this to us actually a good a good while ago. So thank you for being patient patient with us. It's definitely been top three, Carly. Yeah, hopefully it's been worth the wait for you. Um, I think that just leaves us figuring out what we're going to cover next week. So I know that we're sort of taking a little bit of a branch out towards thrillers and you know things that I, I i believe fit in the horror genre but maybe aren't the classic slasher i'd like to take just one more trip in that direction before we veer back into classic horror in the we did the, we did cover cats so you know <laughs> okay good i just don't i don't want to a- anger the people with my out-of-the-box <laughs> ideas so i've actually received two recent suggestions for this um i think that we should cover split okay Let's cover that's it. Very, that's a very different direction. I, I like it. I think that's great. I think it'll be fun. Um, I'll cover some of the, the psychology behind it, just coming from the medical perspective, and I think that it'll be an interesting discussion. I'm stoked. And Kate and I have had a very love-hate relationship with M. Night Shyamalan, so I think it'll be... Haven't we all? <laughs> yeah, haven't we all? <laughs> all right. I'm excited. We'd love to hear what your opinions are on Split. Watch it with us, and then let us know what you think. Email us, and we'll include some reviews and whenever we cover it next week on Nightlight Horror Movie Club. Oh, my gosh. All right. That that concludes our meeting, and we'll see you guys next time for Split. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Dorcia. 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 Dorc